today's scripture reading is Matthew 1, 1 through 6. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in, the, in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Celebrate Advent and... uh, all that this season is, a season of anticipation, this the season of celebrating the arrival of Christ. Uh, we just want to say to this congregation, thank you for everyone who uh, participated and prayed uh, for our affordable Christmas. Last week, uh, this, I mean, yesterday, a Seed to Oaks uh, helped host a beautiful event in which members gave over 650 gifts opened up the church, had people serving, and uh, made it possible for people to receive uh, gifts at a fraction of a cost for, for many people in our community. It was a beautiful thing to see, and I'm so thankful for those of you who have participated, who gave, who, who prayed, and for uh, Seeds to Oaks and all of their hard work along with our, our Mercy Ministry. Uh, would you pray with me? Well, thank you so much for the gift of Advent. Thank you for your grace and your mercy, which uh, got us to this point and today. I thank you for the way that you love your church and your people. Lord, we are desperate for a word from you. We need to hear from you. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would move, uh, that your spirit would speak to us, that your spirit would uh, get in the nooks and the crevices of our hearts so that we can see and see you more clearly so that we can be empowered to to make disciples and to go to the ends of the earth. I thank you for your faithfulness towards us, even on this week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we are continuing our series, The Mothers of Jesus. Um, And basically what we're doing is we're looking at the genealogy of of Jesus that is presented in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 is a a beautiful picture of the genesis or the, the lineage of, of Jesus Christ. And, and a couple of weeks ago, we looked at a man by the name of Judah. Judah is a, a patriarch of Israel. When a Jewish person started reading uh, this genealogy of Jesus and they saw the name of, of Judah, uh, it's possible that a, a, a sort of pride came through them. Judah's a pr- part of the promise of, of God through him and his lineage to to bring about a king. And we see this in Genesis chapter 49, verse 8 through 10, where it says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. So, uh, so the Jews, man, they're anticipating God doing a, a great work uh, through their people. 
They're, they're anticipating this because of the promise that he gave to Abraham that the nations would be blessed through his seed. They're anticipating this because of the promise that, that comes to Judah that a, a king shall arise. So they're reading this with a, a sort of pride. But then all of a sudden you see that it says Judah, the father of Perez and, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, uh, to the average Jew, they're like, hold up now. Whoa. Like, man, Matthew, you're going to tell the whole story. You're going to put, put it out there like this. Right? Uh, the, the careful reader knows that Judah ended up having twins and that the mother of these twins was Tamar. And they know that this was a, uh, a situation of incest as Tamar addressed it as a, a prostitute and slept with her father-in-law. And this was a, a scandal that even through the scandal, God used to, to bless. But the careful reader will think to themselves, like, man, Matthew's not holding back. He's telling the whole story here. And they probably would say, why is it that Tamar is mentioned? And why is Matthew writing it through this lens rather than, than taking another route? But the same is true when it comes to, to David. If you read the genealogy in verse 1, we see that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David. Son of David. They would have been reminded of this covenant that was given about David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That David, through his lineage, there will come a king who would reign forever. And so they're reading that, and the sense of pride again is, is probably a taking on in their heart as they're thinking through this lineage. But then we get to verse 6. And Jesse, the father of King David, and David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, as they're reading this, again, this would, have been, this would have been shocking that in this genealogy that a woman is mentioned, and not only a, a, a woman is alluded to, but a, a Gentile woman. Not only is this Gentile woman alluded to, but her name is not there. Rather, her husband Uriah's name is there. Says if Matthew is saying, hey, I'm going to tell you all the whole story here. David, this king who you love, this king whom you esteem, he, he had some issues too. He took another man's wife and they bore a child together. Even as we think through this genealogy, we see that this genealogy shows the mess of Jesus' family. This genealogy does not hold back the brokenness. The, this genealogy reminds us that even our, our heroes are, are fallen. Our heroes are, are broken. Our heroes are complex. Our heroes are sinful and impacted by, by this fall. And even David, whom they esteem, wasn't enough. Matthew is reminding us that this genealogy in the book that he is writing, it is not about Abraham. It is not about Isaac. And ultimately, it's not about Jacob. It's not about Moses. This genealogy is about Jesus, the Messiah. And the same people that Jesus came from is the people that Jesus came for. That every single person through the halls of human history needs salvation, needs to be saved because all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And he is, he is letting them know right now with a, with a subtweet. It's almost like a diss track in hip hop, just a kind of a side, a side diss. 
that even your heroes have issues. But you know, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, that's the mother of Jesus we want to focus on today. And Bathsheba, a lot of times when her story is told, we're only given half of a story. And sometimes when we're only given half of a person's story, um, we can categorize them or view them in, in a certain way. But as Christians, we believe that, that God wants to use our whole story. We believe that we as human beings, we're, we're, we're complex. We're both a, a sinner, a sufferer, and a saint. And there's something powerful about sitting in the full story of another human being and a Christian, seeing not only their, their brokenness, but their pain, not only their, their triumph, their, their trauma, but their triumph. And that's what we want to look at today is, is we want to see this whole story of Bathsheba, and we want to see some, some nuggets and some great reminders for us this Advent. In order to get the whole story, we want to acknowledge the tr- the trauma of Bathsheba, to see this woman who was Uriah's wife who fell, fell prey to, to David's abuse of power. And we want to sit in that and experience that so that we can learn about, about, about God and his, his, his grand narrative, but also we want to see how the Lord restores to her through triumph. And to do so, let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, we talked about David and Bathsheba back in our series on, uh, on David, the life of David. But let's just revisit it quickly to see that uh, Bathsheba was a, was a woman who was used. And chapter 11 reminds us that David should be at war, but he's not at war. Instead, he's at home, and he wakes up in the middle of the night after possibly eating something bad. Maybe he had acid uh, reflex, and he can't sleep. And he goes to the cool of, uh, to the roof of his palace, and the text says in chapter 2 that from his roof he saw a, a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then it says that David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from the monthly uncleanliness Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. Verse 6 says, so David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So this this is scandalous. This is the deepest and darkest mark on David's kingship. David was a man of faith up until this point, a man of courage, a man whom the Lord was using mightily. He was a, 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 song, a psalmist who were doing great things in Israel, but he uh, takes some time off. He's not where he's expected to be. And in the middle of the night, he sees this woman, and the Bible says that this woman is bathing. Now, here's what's sad. What's sad is, is that often uh, throughout history, as I read commentaries, and even as I, I read this week some articles, Bathsheba is presented as the, uh, the one who seduced David. But nowhere in this text does it allude to the fact that Bathsheba did anything wrong. In fact, I read an article this week on a popular Christian website that essentially uh, was, was titled uh, in a way that, that put the blame on Bathsheba. It was how Bathsheba's beauty caused David to commit adultery and murder. And I almost dropped my iPad. I'm like, what? 
I'm like, who is the content manager of this website? How did this make it to the website? How did her beauty cause him to murder a man and take her life? And take his wife. But the Bible presents a different picture. The Bible, in in just these these few verses, shows us that, if anything, Bathsheba was a, a morally upright, faithful wife who was trying to to do God's will. It says that she was bathing. People infer on that, that somehow she was trying to seduce David, but that's that's not the case. A woman uh, bathing in in public would not have been something that would have been shocking back then as they had communal places where where women bathed and people bathed. And uh, it's possible that she bathed with her clothes on. That's what they did in these places. It's a it's a ritualistic washing that more than likely was happening place. That's why the text uh, uh, hints at and says, now she was purifying herself for the monthly uncleanliness. Um, her period had ended, and for the next seven days, according to the law, um, she went through a, a cleansing process. And that's probably the, the washing that she was doing, going through this, this ritual. If anything, David is, is probably being a creep right now. I mean, she could have been outside in a communal place, or she could have been inside minding her own business. David could have kind of been looking through the window. We don't know. But she's, she's bathing, and David's own heart and desires are warped, and he gives into his sinfulness and his lust, and he, he calls for her. But not only does it say that, that she's bathing, which doesn't point to her subduction, it also says that her, points out her father and her husband. She's the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah. Both, by the way, later on, are mentioned in the scriptures of man as men of valor. These are respected men, warriors, people who fought alongside David, who were close to David. They are known men. And the author is is putting her name forth and reminding the reader of her father and her husband to to hint at the fact that this is an upstanding family. And then she's going through this cleansing ritual. She's, She's going through this ritual which the law tells her to go to. She's being faithful. She's being a devout Israelite woman. And David abuses his power calls for her while her husband is away at war. I mean, at least this is an abuse of power. This is coercion. Back then, if a king said something and a king wanted something, in this culture, in this day and time, that's what the king got. Especially secular kings in which Israel was surrounded by. And that's why God in Deuteronomy chapter 17 is warning Israel that when they choose a king, that their king shouldn't be like the other kings of the world. Rather than their king selfishly taking and heaping upon wives upon themselves, they they shouldn't. And and rather than their king uh, uh, using and misusing their, their power, they ought to be servants. The nation should look at Israel and say, look at Israel's king. Israel's kings are are different. But we see that the power has went to David's head. And now he takes his his friend's wife for himself. And today, what we would call this, at worst, is a sexual assault, maybe even rape. Do you see this woman? This woman is, 
is used. This woman is probably happily married. In Nathan's parable, when Nathan comes and talks to, to David about what has happened, he gives a picture and a parable that shows you Uriah and, and, and Bathsheba as being deeply in love, as having a great relationship. Uriah loves his, his wife. It points Bathsheba as a, as a ooh lamb, as a, as a pure lamb that, that is almost showing. The author said, kind of saying that like Bathsheba is doing what's right. She's a faithful wife. She is cherished. She is loved. And then she is preyed upon by the man that should have protected her while her husband is away. Do you see this woman? And she's used. And then she's sit back home after a, a one-night stand. And David probably just wants to forget about it. And then all of a sudden she's pregnant and she writes these words to David, I am pregnant. And David's no fool. He knows what this means. If this gets out that he slept with Uriah's wife or if Uriah's wife had even been unfaithful for another man. So what does he try to do? He tries to cover up his sin. It goes from bad to worse by putting together a plan to, to kill Uriah. And that's what he does. I've said it before, I say it again, sin, it kills, it steals, and it destroys. It, it binds, it blinds, and then it grinds. It makes us stupid. And that's what David does. This woman is, is forced to be set aside. He covers up his sin, and she is used and feeling abused left to go back home living in shame, left to, to go back home and be alone and have the secret to herself, left to just kind of live with it. And, and, if, and if Uriah hadn't got pregnant, she would have raised a, another man's child and, 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 and she would have thought and Uriah would have thought that it was his and she probably would have withered away and, and had to live with that secrecy and that pain. You see this woman, she's used, but not only is she used, but she's now a grieving widow. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 26, we read, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. Uriah, her husband, is now dead. This man who loved her and who, who cherished her, this man who was a man of character, a man of respect, He's now dead. So she goes from feeling used to now being a grieving widow. Not only is she used and now a, a grieving widow, she's now a bereaved mother. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 15 through 20, we read that, that her son dies. Can you imagine? She finds out that she's pregnant. Uriah dies. She becomes David's wife. I can only speculate on what that may have been like, the guilt and the shame that she had and cheating on Uriah, knowing that he is now dead. And then all of a sudden she has this new life in her and she's being kept by this king. There's this probably these horrible mixed emotions that's going on within her. There's this complexity and and I don't know, maybe she begins to accept the fact that she's had a child with David. And maybe she's starting to love this child. And all of a sudden, we read in verse 15, 2 Samuel chapter 12, after Nathan had gone home, 
home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and she became ill. So she, she loses the child. The child dies. So she's used. Her husband that loved her dies, and now the child that she has is dead. I've, in my 12 years of ministry, gotten to sit with some women through some some horrible life circumstances, gotten to grieve along with women who've lost their, their husbands, gotten to walk alongside a mother and mothers who've had stillbirths or possibly had a, a child die unexpectedly, gotten to talk to women who have felt used, realized that a man had only come into their lives to take advantage of them and to prey on them, and because they were seeking love, they either gave in or they were assaulted, left to live with that shame and that guilt, wondering if somehow it was their fault. And let me just pause right here and just to say what should already be known, men, a woman. Um, it's never the, the survivor of assault or rape who should be faulted. It's not a woman's beauty that causes you to sin and to stumble. It's not even her dress. It's your own warped heart's desire. And as I thought about Bathsheba all this week and all that was on her, I couldn't but help but to pause. It was hard for me to write this as I was forced to to sit in her story in a way that I've never said in before. And then I realized that not only that, but she was also a common wife. And by common wife, I don't mean that she just had like an ordinary life. No, she was a king's wife. But that's the thing. She was one of the king's wives. She went from being the only wife of Uriah to now being one of anywhere from five, at least five to eight other wives in in David's palace. She went from being special to being common. Do you see this woman? Do you see her trauma? Do you see her pain? Bathsheba is a real person who lived through grave injustice, unexpected drama and trauma. But here's the beauty of Bathsheba's story is that while she was traumatized and and probably for a period of time paralyzed and and experienced all of these brokenness. Her story doesn't end there. God gives her the strength and the the courage and the the, the fortitude to, to not be defined by that. And as hard as that was and as, as, as normal as that would be to be defined by that, God redeems her story. And that's what the, 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 the genealogies remind us of these women, that, that there is redemption for them, that God did not give up on them, that, that though they were used and abused and, and seen as Gentiles and not included, that God restored them and he saw them as a bruised reed and that Christ came not only for these women, but for people like them. People who feel abandoned, people who've been used, people who have experienced death and and, and sorrow and and assault, that God sees them. That our faith is not simply an intellectual faith, a theological faith, that our faith is a right now faith, a faith that says, I see you. It's a faith of redemption and hope. Let's look at Bathsheba real quick. 
and see her forgotten legacy. After this happens, we see a, a powerful story in, with, in which Bathsheba claims what's hers and Solomon's. She's went through this horrible change of circumstances. But that's not where her story ended. In 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 15 through 21 and 29 through 30, we read these words. So Bathsheba went to see the aged king in his room where Abishag, the Shunammite, was attending. Bathsheba bowed down, prostrating herself before the king. What is it you want, the king asked. She said to him, my Lord, you yourself swore to me, your servant by the Lord your God, the Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne. But now Adonijah has become king, and you, my Lord, the king, do not know about it. He has sacrificed great numbers of cattle, fattened calves and sheep, and has invited all the king's sons. And Abathar the priest, and Joab the, the commander of the army, but he has not invited Solomon your servant. My Lord, the king, the, the eyes of all of Israel are on you to, to learn from you who will sit on the throne of my Lord the king after him. And otherwise, as soon as my Lord the king is laid to rest with his ancestors, I and my son Solomon will be treated as criminals. The king then took an oath, as surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out this very day what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in my palace. So here's what's going on. Here's what's cooking. David is, is now older. The Bible says that he is on his deathbed, and he's often given to violent shakes. He can't warm his body, and he is waning away. And David's oldest son now is trying to claim the kingdom. He figures his father is not able to, to be, be a king, and it's time for him to take what's rightfully his. But Nathan comes up to Bathsheba and encourages her. Nathan the prophet, the same one who confronted David, encourages her to go before David and to remind David what he promised her. And apparently David had promised Bathsheba that that Solomon, their son together, though he was not the oldest of the men, child, children, that, that he was going to be king, that he would set her up so that they would, that he would be king. The Bible says that David is, is sick and he's old. And I love Nathan. Nathan is walking with Bathsheba. Nathan comes alongside her. He says, listen, go to David, claim what's yours. And she does that. She prostrates herself, lays prostrate before David. And she says, listen, my Lord, this is what's going on. She explains the situation. And then after she leaves, Nathan comes in behind her and doubles down on David. He's like, this is what you said. Take care of her. I love Nathan. Praise God for Nathan. You don't get through trauma and you don't get through brokenness alone. It takes community. It takes people looking at you learning and knowing your story and courageously walking with you through every turn and every pain. And it takes courage on your part to open up after someone has abused your trust to be able to be vulnerable and to say, I need your help. Walk with me. What a beautiful picture. Nathan walks with her. He nourishes her. He says, go claim what's yours, girl. And then after she leaves, I can see them high five. And he says, like, good job. Now it's my turn. And David's probably on his deathbed like, oh, Lord, it's Nathan again. 
But that's not where the story ends. This, there's another fascinating chapter, verse. Listen. In 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 19 through 20, we see that David honors Solomon as the next king. And we see that Bathsheba is going to be honored before all. After David dies, Adonijah, who had hoped to be king, approaches Bathsheba, makes a request. He says these words, ask King Solomon to let me marry uh, Abishag from Sunam. Um, he won't refuse you. And so Bathsheba goes up to David to, uh, to make this request. And the Bible says something very beautiful here in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 19 through 20. It says this, when Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah, the king stood up to meet her, bowed down to her, and sat down on his throne. Listen to this. And he had a throne brought to the king's mother, and she sat down at his right hand. Wow. This son makes a request, says, hey, David's dead. There's one of his, his wives or, or women who attended to him. Um, can you go and ask Solomon if she can become a part of my family or really my property? He knows that Bathsheba has influence in her son's life. And it's a beautiful picture that Solomon listens to her request, has a throne made for her. And then she is seated on the right hand of Solomon, on a throne beside the king. The most powerful man in Israel now honors his mother as the most powerful woman of Israel. This woman who was used, this woman who was, was a bereaved widow, this, this woman who, who lost her child, this, this, this woman who was dealing with all this brokenness and complexity, I'm sure, this, this woman who is a survivor of, of, of assault or the coercion of power is now the most powerful woman in Israel. And she's not like the second most powerful person to a person who's a fool in Israel. No, she's the second most powerful person to a person who is thought of as being the wisest person in the world at the time who kings and queens would come to sit at his feet to learn from, whose, whose kingdom was prospering when they saw him and came into his courtroom. They saw her God is a God of redemption. She could have been paralyzed for the rest of her life by what had happened. She could have been so insecure that she never claimed what is hers, but God empowered this woman to move from trauma to triumph. God empowered this woman to have influence in the most powerful man in the world's life at this time. And that's the whole story of Bathsheba. And may we be reminded here today that there's things that happen in our lives. There are bruises that we receive, and those bruises point us, us back, as Pastor TPJ said last week. But those bruises don't have to define where we're going. And it takes a lot to overcome trauma. It takes a lot to overcome negative experiences. It, it takes a, a lot to, 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 to grow from a place of insecurity to security, to, to make sense of our own family dynamics and, and, and trauma and, and brokenness. But my word for you today is this, is that no matter where you've been, and what you've been through, that in Christ you can experience healing. And in Christ you can, can not be defined by those things. In Christ you have a home, you have a, a, a place. And in Christ you are, are treasured. And in Christ you are redeemed. 
three quick things we want to look at. First, we want to see God's love for women in the treasure place in God's family. Advent is a time to remember God's love for women in the treasure place in God's family. And we see this by the author of Matthew, including these five women in a genealogy. And not only that, but we also see that when these women are taken advantage of and when they experience injustice, that God doesn't just let that go. The, the perpetrators and the people who do that injustice, um, that they're, they are held responsible. We read this and they're saying a story in Samuel that when Nathan comes to, to David, he says these words to David, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and under the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And we know that David repented. In Psalm 51, we see this beautiful expose of David's brokenness and repentance before the Lord. But the Lord still held David responsible. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die, however, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme the child also that is born of you shall surely die. So we see that God holds David responsible for his abuse of power, for the way that he treated Bathsheba. God doesn't just skirt over that. No, David's life is, after that, is, is, is filled with, with trauma himself as one of his sons sleeps with his wives in, in broad daylight. And they say in a, more of an honor-shame culture, this would have been something that would have weighed on David. This would have been a black mark on him. This would have been the talk of the town. The Jerusalem Post is like the New York Times back then. They would have wrote about it. Scandal has now entered his kingdom. He will be forced to, to move and, and go on the run and hide from his own son. And this reminds us again, men, that, that, that women are to be treasured and protected, that that women are to be seen and to heard, that, that women are, are, are to be loved by us and protected by us and, and empowered in a culture that doesn't want to empower them and a, and a culture that's also, also often so patriarchal and, and adversary towards us that in the church, it should be different. It should be different. And I love how Solomon just has this relationship with his mother that he loves her so much that he puts her in a position of honor. And throughout Proverbs and throughout the wisdom literature, he is honoring his mother. In fact, he's telling his sons to, to take care of your mama, listen to your mama. Proverbs 6.22, my son, keep your father's command and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Bind them always on your heart. Fasten them around your neck. When you walk, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will speak to you. Perhaps Solomon was able to say this, listen to your mother, let her words guide you because, because Bathsheba also was a woman of wisdom. Because Bathsheba was a woman who, who was, was faithful to parent Solomon. I don't think that Solomon's wisdom was by mistake. God gave it to him. God blessed him with the gift of wisdom, but, but God also fostered that, that wisdom by allowing him to have a mom who was honorable and a mom who was wise. 
And this wisdom that she had came from God. This is God redeeming her story. This was God coming alongside of her and blessing her and gifting her so that she can move from trauma to triumph. Second, not only do we see God's love for women in this text, but we also see that God is using your story in the service of the king. The story of these women and Jesus' genealogy reminds us that God is at work in both the good and bad of our stories. That God uses our stories in service for him. He takes our significant bumps and, and bruises and he says, that does not define you. And that's what we believe as a Christian. We believe as a Christian that when we give our heart and our life to Jesus, that we, we take off those garments of guilt, those garments of shame. We don't ignore them. We don't ignore our bruises, but we give them to the Lord and we pick up our cross and we follow him and we believe, we believe, and we learn to trust and to have faith that God is using all of our story, all of our bumps, all of our bruises, all of our sin, all of our confusion, all of our complexity for his glory. We believe that that God is sovereign and even in that ugly mess that was a result of the fall and other people's sin, that God is saying that is not you, my child. I have a a, a plan for you. I, I love you. I've set my affections on you. And listen, I identify with you. That's what Advent is about. Advent is about the fact that this God who created the heavens and the earth, this God who flung and spoke the stars into existence by his very word, this God who is holding all things together, allowing this earth to spin on an invisible axis, is the same God who became a man. Same God who was born in a manger, born of a woman under the law, but came to free those who was under the law. The same God knows what it's like to be used and abused as he subjected himself to sinful humanity whom he came to save, as he allowed himself to be assaulted, whipped with 39 whips save one. As he allowed a a crown of thorns to be placed upon his head in mockery and called the the king of the Jews. As he allowed a cross to be put on his back. And and though he could have called a midget of angels down to save him and to defend him, he chose to humbly walk up the Via Della Rosa, the road of sorrow. God who was nailed to a wooden cross. A God who was taken high stretched wide and dropped low, a God who was forgotten about, stripped naked in front of his mother and others, mocked by soldiers, pierced in the side, and blood and water came rushing God. This this God identifies with you. He says, I I know what it's like to be used. I I know what it's like to be broken. I know what it's like to be forgotten about. I, I know what it's like to be crushed, but I was crushed for your iniquities, bruised for your transgressions. I came and entered the world. So that you can know you are not alone. And I'm now sitting on the right hand side of the Father, interceding for you. I'm praying for you, sister. I'm praying for you, man. I, 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 I'm, I'm praying for you. I'm, 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 my blood cries out for you. And not only that, I, I didn't leave you as an orphan. I, I gave you my spirit who is indwelling you. And when that trauma comes up and reminds you and Satan accuses you and and tries to put you under guilt and shame, my spirit cries out for you with groans too deep for words. Jesus said, not only am I praying for you, but my spirit is praying for you. 
You may say, well, I just feel alone. I feel like no one gets me. I I feel like I just can't process this. I, I feel like people forget about my story and no one's praying for me. Let me tell you something. You got two awesome prayer partners. If nobody else is praying for you, you've got the Spirit interceding for you. If nobody else is interceding for you, you've got Jesus interceding for you. Let me tell you why that's good news. When the Spirit and Jesus prays, their prayers get through. This text reminds us of who we are, that we are kings and and queens and brothers and sisters and daughters. And may we, like Bathsheba, go into the presence of the king boldly to make a request. But here's the good news. The king that we go to doesn't use and abuse us. The king that we go to isn't isn't a human. The king that we go to is a is a, is a God-man who died for us and who invites us to come before the throne of the Father boldly. You have been redeemed. You are a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You are treasured by the Father. You have been justified, declared right by the Father. You have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He says, go and claim your peace. Claim your victory. Go before the throne of grace and say, Father, I'm not feeling it. It feels like my past is is, is keeping me in bondage in the present. But Father, you said that you love me. You said that you will never leave me nor forsake me. You said that I am your child, your beloved. You said that you sing over me. You said that you will redeem me, that you would never forget me. You said that my name is engraven on your hand, that my name is in the Lamb's book of life. Father, send help. It's amazing about the covenant of or the genealogy is that Jesus is mentioned as Jesus, the son of David. And when I thought about that, I said, what humility Jesus had to have to take upon that title, the title of a a complex person who abused power. Wow. And the reason Jesus allowed himself to be called the, the son of David, even after David's sin, is because God made a covenant with David. And when God makes a covenant with a person and sets his affections on a person, in spite of themselves, in spite of what they do, God will not break that covenant. David found forgiveness from God. Nathan said it right there in the text. And God still treated David as a beloved son. And here's the good news. God has made a covenant with you. And we can look at the story and say, how treacherous David is. But let me tell you something. Me and you, we're David. We may not have used and abused power in that same way, but all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And daily we fall short of God's standard. But God does not break covenant with us. And he has given us a new covenant in Jesus's blood that Jesus Even in the midst of our brokenness and sin, he identifies with us and says, I'll wear that title that you belong to me in spite of you. So if you're here today, you say, I'm just like David. I'm a mess. I'm a wreck. If people really knew who I am, if you could just take a a, a microscope and look into my heart, you'll see that I'm like David. I'm saying that, well, there's good news. You get it. 
We get that God does not disown those who are his. And that's what communion is. Every Sunday, we remind ourselves of God's love for us and that he doesn't disown us by taking a meal together as Christians. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, he took a cup and says, this cup is the new covenant of my blood shed for you. Christian, as often as you eat this bread and, and drink this wine, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. And as you eat this meal, you remind yourself that in Christ, you have been declared righteous, you have been forgiven, you are loved, and you are cherished, and that you have a king on the Father's right hand who is for you. If you're not a Christian, we want to ask you not to partake in this meal. This is a meal that we take to celebrate this covenant, this, this promise that God has made with us, that he who begun a good work will bring it to completion in us. But rather, I want you to see uh, uh, yourself um, today as one who is, is not in Christ and one who can easily become a part of the family of Christ by admitting that you fall short, that you sin. And by confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he too can give you a new heart and new affections for him in a new life. So turn from a life committed to yourself and turn to a life committed to Jesus. Trust him with your trauma and allow him to bring you to a place of triumph through his son. Those of you in the front half of the room, come to the front. Back half of the room, go to the back. Gluten-free communion is over to my left. Let's pray.